0: Dear brothers and sisters, grace is yours from your Savior Jesus Christ, who has not abandoned you, but instead continues to receive you back. We, even we sinful creatures, today we're we're starting this uh, in the shade of the tree series, and and I think maybe this reading is the one that that kind of typifies in the shade of the tree best of any of the, the readings that we're going to look at, uh, because that that phrase in the shade of the tree, it it kind of harkens to those those warm days of late spring and early summer, those times when, when you're looking just for that comfortable shade, and there in the shade, the temperature is perfect. And you get that sense that kind of all is right. And you're reminded, you're reminded in Genesis 2 that all was right. Now they dwelt in the, in the shade of the tree. They dwelt in the cool of the garden with the Lord their God. They knew him perfectly and he them. They recognized his footsteps as he walked in the cool of the garden. They recognized the footsteps of their God and they weren't afraid because they were in perfect harmony with him. All had been created and all was created very good. In the midst of that beautiful picture is also the sense of what we have lost. There's also the sense of the effect of sin in the world. And the effect of what happens when when God's people, those whom he had formed for this purpose to be in relationship with him, God's people had turned their backs and had had lost all that God had created for them. And in the picture of the garden, in the picture of of creation, the picture of of a God who has given all these good things, we're reminded of, of what God wants us to once again have. And that's that's really what we're looking at this morning when we think of these two trees that God made and, and that recollection that everything that the Lord God had made in the garden he called good and when creation was complete, he called it very good. Right? That all things were very good, that all was right. Everything had been created exactly as God had intended it to. All things were created good and yet there would be corruption. Yet there would be a, a brokenness. There would be something that happened to take it all away. And, and before I get into that, before we get into what the Scriptures say, again, I, I know that I, I always ask the wrong questions of the Scriptures, and I tell you this all the time. I always look at these texts, and I, I want just a certain bit of information that God didn't give us. And one of the things that I want to know is, what did the fruit of the trees of the garden taste like? Right? I mean, have you been in an area where where fruit grows on trees, right? Have you been like in a tropical area and eaten a pineapple there? It tastes way different than what you get out of the grocery store here. Or something that's not far from our region, right? Have you you eaten apples right off the trees? Been to Michigan during apple picking season or cherry picking season time or peaches? They're so different right off the tree, right? So what was the fruit like in the garden? What did it taste like? It was all around, all of these fruit-bearing trees that God had given for sustenance. What did that fruit taste like? And what did the fruit taste like from the tree of life? I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that must have tasted like to them and to have the privilege of taking it whenever they wanted, and to consume as much as they wanted. And yet we have this phrase, don't we? The phrase goes like this, forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest. There was one tree that even they didn't know the taste of. And it was there in the middle of the garden, and it was good. Right, Because remember that everything that the Lord God created was good. The tree of life was good. All the other trees created were good. Everything that God created was good, including the tree, we say, of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and people will often look at this tree and they'll say, well, why did God create that in the first place? Why did, he, why did he go and make that stupid tree? If he hadn't, we'd all still be there. And yet in the same breath, the same people will, will rejoice in the fact that God created people to have free will. And you see, that's the testimony of God allowing his people to have free will. Is that he did give them a tree and say, don't eat from this one. That there is something here that I want you to to do to obey me, right? By not eating of this tree, his people would worship him, would be obedient to his word, and would demonstrate their love for him. Eat from any one of the trees of the garden. Eat from the tree of life. Just don't eat from this tree. You see, God did that so that his people could freely worship him. God did that so that his people could freely obey him. God did that so that his people could freely love him. What God created was good. But the serpent, the scriptures tell us, the serpent was was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made And he really is crafty, wily e. Coyote-type crafty, right? He really is crafty, seeking to tear down, seeking to destroy. And, and again, I've shared this with you before, and I'll say it again. I don't believe that the fall happened on the eighth day. I don't know when it happens. The scriptures aren't clear exactly when it happens. I think that Satan continued to work on them with his wiles and his deceit because the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he shows his craftiness by deceiving, right? His question to Eve, right off the bat, his question to Eve is deceitful. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right? Did did God really say that there's something in this garden that you can't eat? I mean, look around. All the stuff. And God... He put you here, right? You you didn't ask to be placed here. He put you here. And right here in the middle of the garden, notice both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are both in the middle of the garden. He put you here in this garden in the midst of it. So look around. Which, Which tree is the one that God told you you can't eat from? Well, Eve answers. And I I believe her answer is fairly wise, right? She says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, right? The first thing that she notes is the blessing of God on her life. The first thing she notes is the gift of God to her. We've been set apart. We can eat from any of the trees of the garden, just this one that we can't eat from, right? She points out to him, we may eat from any of the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will surely die. And people like to say, well, Eve twisted God's words. Maybe that's true. But, but I think Eve is being wise with the crafty serpent who's in front of him, with, in front of her, the crafty serpent who's trying to deceive her. She says, look, we can eat from any of the trees of the garden, but we can't eat from that one. And because of that, we don't even touch it. We, we allow that to just remain right there. And we do exactly what God has told us to do. Because if we do, we die. And she's right about that. She's right about the consequence of eating from that tree. But Satan isn't done, and Satan does what he always does in his deceptive ways. We see it from the very beginning. The father of lies, he decides to move in, and he decides to side with her. Look, Eve, I'm on your side here. Right? Why did God give you a tree that he told you you couldn't eat from? What's the story with this? Why doesn't God want you to have that? And this is what he says. He's not actually going to put you to death, is he? If you just eat the fruit from that tree, seems a little harsh, doesn't it, Eve? Right? And Satan's moving in. I'm on your side. God's the one who's against you. And here's what God doesn't want, right? God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What God doesn't want, Eve, is he doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to keep something from you. Did you ever think about it that way, Eve? He moves in, he sides with Eve. He's more crafty than any of the other wild animals. And now Eve starts to play out the scenario in her head and she starts to look at that tree, in the garden, in a whole new way. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Now, I want you to note something. It's not in our text for today, but in chapter 2 verse 9, it says that all of the trees in the garden were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So when she repeats this, all she's doing is saying what the scriptures already say. It's good. God didn't make this tree look ugly. He didn't make its fruit taste bad. He didn't do something so that they would go, well, that's the reason why we're not doing this. That's the reason why we're not eating from it. He wanted them to obey freely and to demonstrate their love totally. And so when he says this, when, when Eve says this, excuse me, when she says that the tree is pleasing to the eye and good for fruit, she's repeating what the scriptures have already said. And now she adds this little, this little part. It's also desirable for gaining wisdom. desirable for having something that she doesn't have. Forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest and so they eat. Eve first, then Adam without objection and they get the wisdom that they desire. Now I think one of the mistakes that people have when they look at this text. I think one of the mistakes they have is that people assume that like there in that fruit of that tree was like the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? That like they took it and they actually were given some knowledge that they didn't previously possess. Now the knowledge that they now possess is the knowledge of what rebellion feels like. The knowledge that they now possess is a knowledge that they hadn't had before of what it is to know now that God has come and God is separate. And the knowledge that they have is a knowledge that they hadn't had before, which is the knowledge of what evil is like because they've participated in it. It isn't what they thought. And so their immediate reaction is to realize that they were naked to sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. They realize that they're naked and vulnerable. They're now exposed, not only to each other, but to God. They realize now what they have done in this experience of evil, and they can't get far enough away from it. They can't hide enough. They can't cover up enough, though they try. Sin has entered the garden. Sin has entered the world. And the perfect bliss that they experienced with God of walking with him and hearing his footsteps, of eating from all of the trees of the garden and experiencing the blessing of being set apart to receive his gifts has now been lost. This is just an old story, right? It's a superstition. I mean, who can believe a story like that? I mean, it's like... It's like sleeping bear dunes in Michigan, right? Evidently, today's sermon is brought to you by the Michigan Department of Tourism. (laughs) Right? You know the story, the, the, the the mother bear swims away with its cubs to try to escape the forest fire and the cubs don't make it and so they die in the sea and the two islands rise up and the mother is so distraught that she gets covered by the sand and someday she'll wake up and so will her cubs. It's just that kind of a story, right? No, it isn't. It isn't just superstition, some kind of a tale that we tell. In fact, it it rings true even today. The serpent is still crafty. The serpent is still deceiving and deceiving in the exact ways. And it's too much for some people to take. I mean, a talking serpent, come on. Until you hear that voice that echoes in your own head. The temptations that the devil still uses, the temptations to each one of us, not just to eat some cookies that mom and dad said we shouldn't eat, but temptations of the flesh, lust of the flesh, of seeking out those things. And only when we take this seriously do we begin to realize how closely it resonates with us and how those temptations are still given to each one of us. If you do this, you'll gain a new perspective, a new perspective on the world. I mean, after all, all the things that God created, all these things are wonderful and good. Why would he want to keep them from you? You still hear the tempter's voice, the tempter's voice doubting that God wants you to have good things. An assumption that God is keeping something from you. And then there's the moment of sinful flesh. The moment of eating. And it never quite goes the way it's supposed to, right? Because the ways of the world never completely satisfy. And so there's always the sense that maybe maybe the next fruit will be better. Maybe a little bit more of the fruit is what I need to have. And it, it leaves us in that place of despair, of despondency for those of us who are believers to say, now I know that once again I've disrupted this relationship with God. Now I know that once again I've done what I wasn't supposed to. And, and you're living with that guilt and that turmoil inside of yourself and yet that lust of the flesh, it says, but I want to just have a little bit more of it. And so how do I dance that dance and how do I get out of this? It never quite goes the way that we think it should. My sister had a little dog named Pumpkin, and when she and her husband were first married, and this this little dog, it was a cute little dog. It was cute for a little. If you like little dogs, God bless you. It was cute for a little dog, right? And and this dog, uh, this dog had specific rules, and when it would get punished, they would had a little. Don't be too angry. I didn't tell you which sister, so you can't press the charges against her. They would put her in the little shoe closet right by the front door of their apartment. And they would lock the dog in there until the dog learned its lesson. And the dog knew that was its punishment. One day, uh, Cheryl was, kind of had her back to the table, and there was a piece of cake sitting right on the table in the kitchen. She had her back to it. And she turned around and saw the dog looking at it. She went, I bet the dog's going to go for that. She turned back around, and when she turned back around, the dog ran across the room, jumped on one of the kitchen tables, jumped up on the table, and just started eating the cake, just mowing the cake, going after it, right? Then as soon as she yelled and went over to the dog, the dog jumped on the chair, it ran across the room, and sat right in front of the call closet. <laughs> it was all worth it, the dog said. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes that's us. That's us thinking, if I can just have that piece of cake for a minute, I'll take the punishment. It can't be that bad. But you should hear in that the deception of the devil and not the reality of Scripture and what sin does to break our relationship with our loving, creating, giving God. Sin is never as great as we think it's going to be. And it brings about regret and disappointment and punishment. There was another tree in the garden. Side by side there in the middle was the tree of life. It it was mentioned first, and the the thing that I can never wrap my mind around is that the two trees seemingly stood right next to each other. And so they're there gazing on the tree of life and being tempted with the tree which is right next to it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's standing right there, the evidence of God's goodness to them. But they ignore it, and they eat the other one. And so God has to take it away, because now man knows good and evil, and now the world is mired in sin, and so he has to take away the tree of life. He has to take it away, or else they'll live in this wretched estate forever. And that's hard for us to think about. It's hard for us to consider that taking away the tree of life could in some way be an act of goodness from God. But the reality is that God, in fact, takes away the tree of life so that we don't live eternally in this veil of tears, that we don't live eternally in the place where there is brokenness and wretchedness and temptation and guilt and sin. But instead, God wants us to once again have access to the tree of life. And as a reminder As a reminder that this world isn't all there is, there are curses that are placed on us. There is difficulty in life. Again, I encourage you to go back and read through all of this chapter, through the curses that are there, and to understand why God curses in the way that he does, so that his people will not be in love with the world, but will one day long, not to be back in the garden, but to be in perfect paradise. To be back in the place where it is no longer about brokenness, but it's about wholeness, it's about completeness, it's about what God has done. And as evidence for that, his goodness is on display. It's on display from the very beginning until now. Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and vulnerable. They sew together some fig leaves. God makes them coverings. Coverings that are the result of some animal's death. Adam and Eve want to keep living forever in the brokenness of the world and God keeps them from the tree of life so that yes, they will have to experience death, but that they might live eternally with him. God made a way out. And then he gave a promise. The promise, though veiled in chapter three, is eternal. The promise that he would send one for there would be enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Remember this, how it goes, you will crush your heel and you will crush his head. In the sense that God would send one who would do away with the serpent once and for all. That God would send one who would overcome and you place the other scriptures in line with this and you see the temptation of Jesus and of the devil once again working his wiles and being crafty, except this time, this time, Adam resists. This time Jesus maintains perfect obedience and a demonstration of his perfect love for his father. And as I said to the kids, because of his perfect life, he can die a perfect death because God hasn't abandoned his children. And because of his perfect death in our place comes the perfect life of Jesus Christ for us. We who are now made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, we who now have access to the Father once again, that we know that we will one day be able to eat the fruit of the tree of life. So you know what that means? It means, brothers and sisters, that one day we'll get to know what that fruit tastes like. And until that day, we have the promise of Jesus and the assurance that God has not abandoned us but continues to give us good gifts in his creative way, to surround us in his love and give us what we need to sustain us in this life and we have the assurance and faith that we will dwell with him and with all believers in a new garden of his creation. Until that day, may God bless you in his love and surround you in his goodness. Amen.